Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 22 of our podcast. I am joined today by Doug Hanna, president of Physical Therapy of Boulder, which is the largest PT practice in Boulder County, Colorado. Doug has over 30 years clinical experience focusing on spine care and spine rehabilitation with a significant exposure to sports medicine and athletes during his career. He was trained in physical therapy at the Mayo Clinic, graduating in 1988. Doug is also a master's athlete. Doug rides and competes in gravel cycling, mountain biking, and in bike pack races. Doug knows personally and professionally about the challenges of spine health for cyclists. Listen in as Doug talks about why back pain strikes and what we can do to stay pain-free and strong on the bike year after year. I can tell you I learned a few things that I am implementing in my own life starting today. I hope you also find a few tips to help you stay healthy and strong. Okay, well, good morning. This morning, I am joined by Doug Hanna, president of Physical Therapy of Boulder. Doug has over 30 years of clinical practice and is also an athlete racing gravel, mountain bike, and bike pack races. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. I understand that your business, Physical Therapy of Boulder, is the largest private practice in Boulder County. Is that right? That is true. Well, we have uh, an office in Boulder, in Longmont, and in Lafayette, and uh, a really great team of people that has made us grow. Fabulous. Doug, back pain. Yes. It's a big thing. It's a big can of worms, right? No doubt you have uh, lots of people coming to see you for help. We're going to get into back pain for cyclists here in just a little bit. But I wonder if, Doug, if you could just give us a little bit of you know, your background, your education, your experience. How do you know what you know, and how can you identify and relate to the older athlete? Well, it's easy for me to relate to the older athlete because I am one. Nice. I'll be 56 in a couple of weeks. I am a solid middle-of-the-pack racer no matter what discipline that I'm in. <laughs> I'm not a gifted athlete. I am a passionate athlete. Nice. I uh, went to the Mayo Clinic for my physical therapy training, graduated in 1988, and soon after practicing, focused most of my practice on spine care and spine rehabilitation. Over the years, I have treated everything, and you know, lots of sports medicine, lots of athletes, but always a focus on a healthy spine. Excellent. Thanks for that. Sure. Today, our topic is back pain for cyclists. What everybody knows is that cyclists have back pain, and, and there have been lots of articles and studies about it that say that is true. Back pain is the number one issue that professional cyclists will complain about and actually keep them off of the bike. But it's also true for the older athlete, the older amateur athlete. I, I hate to admit it, but the reason that we're talking today, Doug, is not because it occurred to me that back pain for cyclists would be a great podcast. It's because a good friend of mine hurt his back and was off of his bike and he went to see you for help. And he suggested, this is a great topic for a podcast. And you know what? It, it's true. Yes. It is a great topic. Yeah. And my friend is now back on his bike, thanks to you. Yeah, he was great to work with. He's a prime example. There's a lot of things about his case that I think are applicable to most athletes. This gentleman we're speaking of has a history of being a very, very strong rider. Yes. And has 
raced in Europe back in the day and all of that. And despite working countless hours, he's still very focused on his training. He's classic for getting on his rollers at nine o'clock at night, you know, that sort of thing. So he's a committed athlete and things fell apart for him. There's a lot of things to talk about with that case. One of the things that's super common is this feeling that people have to get an MRI because they have back pain because they want to know they want to know what the problem is. And 90% of the time that MRI is completely useless. You'll get a diagnosis from the from the MRI that says you have degenerative disc disease and you have bone spurs and you have foraminal stenosis and all those things. Well, congratulations. If you're over 50, you have those things, whether you have back pain or not. So those things are not causing the back pain. They're not causing the back pain. They are normal findings for someone who is aged over 50 or some, many times over 40. It's just, we age. Things change over time. And in many cases, back pain is worsened after people see their MRI because they see this degeneration and they're like, oh my God. Now it becomes emotional. No wonder I hurt so much. Well, guess what? Your MRI looked exactly the same the day before you hurt your back and you had no pain at all. So one of the things I want the listeners to know is that there's rarely any magic bullet or profound knowledge that comes from the radiology findings, whether it be x-ray or MRI. And it's very rare that the clinical decision-making on how to treat that person changes because of the MRI. I really dislike how so many people in the medical industry present these findings on MRI as, oh, this is a problem. You've got degenerative disc disease. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, you look like you got a 55-year-old back. I don't see anything unusual from that. So I think that's you know a super important thing to recognize because when you are hurting and the pain is bad, especially as an athlete, you can go to these dark places where you're wondering like, is this pain ever going to go away? And am I ever going to be able to ride again or run or swim or whatever it is that I do? And then the emotional side, you start going down that rabbit hole and your pain actually gets worse because of that. So that's one thing to talk about with that. All of what you said made sense, and I've actually heard a lot of that before, but the pain getting worse is interesting in that somehow because you've gotten this confirming evidence, it's like an emotional thing. You have this visual, you have this picture in front of you, and you can say, oh my gosh, there it is. That's my pain. And it's in my back. And how am I going to get rid of it? Right, right. So you go down this emotional roller coaster. If I just think for myself, if I had pain in my back and I thought it maybe was a strained muscle that would heal, then it's a nuisance, right? I've, I got to do whatever I got to do, stopping this, starting that to make the strained muscle go away. But if I see that it's a structural thing, that might mean, oh, for the rest of my life, I'm going to have this pain. And now I'm ruined. Right, right. One thing to think about is there really isn't any muscular low back pain as a cause. You know, if you have muscular low back pain from doing 
deadlifts or working in the garden or anything like that, it's like any other muscle soreness. It goes away in three days, right? When you get these incredibly tight muscles in your back or this muscle pain, that's always from something inside. Well, I have to be careful, not always, but mostly that's from something happening within the nervous system that is actually telling that muscle to tighten to try to protect you. If you're going to have a muscle strain, you have to do something that strains the muscle. Uh, like I said, if you're just riding your bike, unless you're doing like massive watt short intervals in a bad position and it's totally unfamiliar to you, you know, that sort of thing. But if you're doing your normal things and then you have what you feel is muscular back pain, the muscle is the victim, not the culprit. Sometimes there would be a guy is a cyclist and he hurt his back lifting something or he, he did a lot sure. of sh shoveling snow, right? Yeah. The lifting and the twisting always seemed to be the thing that would get me. Yeah. But what he's upset about is that he can't ride his bike. Sure. But then there's the person who has back pain while they ride. And it's a common thing. Yeah. If they ride long enough, their back hurts. And so that has a, that puts restrictions on what they think they can do because of that back pain. Let's step back for a second. And let's talk about this broader picture. Okay. I had bought into the idea until very recently that cycling was so unnatural that it really was not good for you, for your back being in the cycling position. I even had an argument with a very smart person who said, well, heck, being on a bike is way better than sitting on the couch. That has to be true. Of course, that has to be true. He said that the issue is that we sit all day long and then we go sit on a bike too. And a bike is very much like sitting in a chair. Yeah. It's not counterbalancing, giving you a stress for adaptation of the other muscles that's sitting also didn't help. So the cycling is not helping the problems that the sitting caused, right? as opposed to the cycling caused it. That's absolutely true. Let's first talk about what it means to sit on a bike. Okay. And I think it, it depends on your background. I came to cycling, I was a runner before, and I came to cycling late. I have a pretty significant neck problem. And so my cycling position is you know, adaptive to that. And I think that a lot of people that are very focused on their cycling are looking at either how their bike was set up 20 years ago, or they're looking at Grand Tour riders and how their bikes are set, set up. And if you've got this 10 centimeter differential between your saddle height and your bar height, and you're over 50, it's a miracle that you don't have pain because of the strain and the position that you're in. So I think fit is the first place to start um, when we're addressing back pain and really being honest with yourself. Can you go fast in this supposedly fast position if you're hurting? I say the comfortable rider is going to be the fastest rider for anything over, I don't know, two hours or anything like, uh, I don't know what the number is, but if pain shuts you down. So I think it's really important that you have your fit evaluated by someone you trust and you work towards these more neutral positions that really alleviate the stress on your back. 
speaking with really broad strokes, like if your saddle height's really high, high compared to your bars, that's probably a big issue for your back and your neck. The more differential you have there, the more rounded your back is going to be, but then also the more extended or bent back your neck is going to be in order to be able to see down the road, okay? The other thing that is super common is people having their saddle height too high. And what you can do with your friends is as you follow, pay attention to what their pelvis is doing. That pelvis should be still when you're, when you're cycling. If you see the pelvis rocking back and forth, that is an unnatural motion for the lumbar spine. And over time, that can be a real source of irritation. But what that means is that mostly it means that you're reaching as that pedal is going to the bottom or the six o'clock position of the pedal stroke, and then you do it on the other side. We want that lumbar spine to be as stable as possible. That makes sense. And we chatted uh, offline here that we had done a podcast, Charlie Merrill, about pain being in the brain, which is not the same as saying pain is not real. Pain is real, but sometimes pain does not come from a injury or a, a nerve being pressed or something. Sometimes it's coming from the brain as the brain is trying to protect you. Right. Sort of like a muscle might tighten up to try to protect you. Right. The, the nervous system gets scared and that creates pain. Um, and that creates both physical pain and psychological pain. Yeah. And also when the nervous system is scared, it can send an extra dose of information through a nerve to a muscle that causes this muscle tightness. And like I said, Charlie's brilliant with all the pain stuff. And I'd recommend that your listeners go back and listen to Charlie because he's really good at that. What I was trying to say was, so we have talked about that a little bit and people can refer to that. We also did a talk with a bike fitter who also is a PT. And so there is that information. Great. That's awesome. So we can zero in on it. Well, we can zero on the other things. Yeah. So what I was thinking that what we would try to hit on was where does this back pain come from and what can people do? And maybe it could be, you know, what they could be thinking of while they're riding, what sort of exercises they could do to compensate for the fact that our bodies have adapted very well to sitting in chairs. And even when we stand, we don't stand straight, right? You like lean on one yeah. foot yeah. and, you know, and when you sit in a chair, you know, sit straight. And so we've got all of these imbalances, not just front to back, but side to side. And now you're trying to sit on a bike and you're trying to be stiff so that you can put power through your pedals. And for some people that's causing pain for some reason. Right. So when we look at the causes of back pain, there are so many. And to be honest, most of the time, we don't know. We can't say, aha, this is what's causing your pain. Yeah. What we can do is in our professional standpoint, when we're treating people is we can rehab them and get rid of their pain. And 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, you definitely had this or that. And now, as you know, I continue to keep up with the literature, it's like, well, I don't know. It's hard to know. You know, you had pain and we've corrected these things. We've changed these objective things and your pain is gone. And if you maintain these, there's a good chance that your pain won't come back. So 
I think that can be frustrating. You and I were talking before we started about how you're a real detail person and want to dive deep, deep, deep into things. And with back pain, I think that you can do that and still not have the answers. Sure. Sometimes it's a placebo effect. Well, it's not a placebo effect at all. No, you're still treating people and you're treating them for a specific problem. But what I'm saying is you're not exactly sure what structures you're having an effect on. Okay. So you're saying that it's just, there's so many moving parts. So many things there and so much overlap, you can't do that. So Well, maybe the good news is, I'm reading into what you're saying, is that there's a set of protocols you can follow that will address almost all of the things that go wrong so you don't need to know exactly what the problem is. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You know, we use more functional tests, more movement-based tests, and that is really what we work to restore. Okay. So right. I think you hit on it earlier that we sit on a bike. If you're training, you're on the bike, what, eight, maybe up 15. I've had some 20-hour weeks lately. That's a lot. It's a lot. And then we, most of us sit for work. Most of us then also sit for enjoyment, you know, whether we're watching a movie or reading or geeking out on bike stuff on the computer, there's just so much sitting. So we need to think about like, how do we balance and how do we do that reasonably without feeling like, oh my gosh, now I have another five hours a week I've got to figure out in order to take care of my body yeah. when I really just want to ride my bike and do my job and be with my family kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's important to know that there's been some good research that shows when you're over 40, if you're not strength training, you can be losing as much as 4% of muscle mass per year, which 4% by itself doesn't sound like a lot, but Joe, you and I are a lot past 40. Yeah. And you multiply 40 times or four times 15 and you get a big number. Scary. Yeah. I think a basic strengthening program that can be done in like 20 minutes is huge for people to activate their upper back, their lower back, their glutes, even the muscles that we use primarily when we ride, because you know, sometimes I don't feel like most people get stronger when they're on the bike. They get, they may get some, and there's probably plenty of research to refute what I just said. But I think if you're really going to get strength gains, you need to be pushing some weight. So if you're, if you have a basic strengthening program, like what I do takes like 30 minutes, and that's core upper back, lower body. And I do it twice a week. In a gym, in your basement? I do it at home. I do it at home. I'm not a big, strong guy. So I don't need a ton of weight at all. I've got uh, some dumbbells and uh, it works out just fine. So you're not trying to get bigger. You're trying to hang on to what you have. I'm trying to actually, I feel like I wasn't lifting for a long time. So I'm trying to catch up. Okay. And I am trying to get stronger for sure, uh, but at the same time, prevent loss, both things. Okay. And then we have to look at mobility. The lack of flexibility in cyclists and runners can really be profound. And that has 
all kinds of implications, especially on our hips. Our hips get nutrition by going through full range of motion. And when you're going through a limited range of motion, you get more wear and tear in the same spot. So you really want to work on your hip mobility. Uh, You want to work on your middle back mobility so that you can come upright. Easy things to do are like many people have used like foam rollers to lay on and arch over to really just, you know, what is the antidote to being bent over all the way? bending backwards, you know, and doing it on a regular basis. If you start doing that, and like my foam roller sits in the living room next to the TV, it's not like a regular routine I have, but I just, you know, a commercial will come on or I'm not necessarily interested in what I'm watching and I'll just lay down and I'll get on the foam roller. Right, right. And I'll stretch my back and I'll roll out my quads and my calves and all of those things. And so it's not like I'm adding a bunch of time to my self-care. It's just part of what is, you know, happening. Okay. So a cyclist with back pain is not going to solve it by riding his bike more. Almost never. Yeah. Almost never. You got to change something, right? And so that could be all kinds of things that are the back pain, but but why couldn't they solve it by riding their bike more? One could be that the problem is not a weakness in the muscles that are being used in cycling. It could be a weakness in the muscles that aren't being used in cycling. Yes. And it could be the what you're doing to your body when you're not cycling. If you sleep on your stomach, that is not a good position for your lower back. And you're going to be more prone to have back pain on the bike. Okay. Interesting. If you are sitting at work with bad posture, let's back up a little bit here. There's a a fundamental rule in biomechanics called Wolf's Law. And Wolf's Law basically says that when you maintain a position for more than 20 minutes, this phenomenon of creep will occur. So creep is deformation over time. And what I want you to think about with creep is if you take a pen and You hold the pen and you bend it in the middle, it will create a little bit of an arc, right? Yeah. Well, if you hold that force long enough, that pen becomes that shape. That is what creep is. Okay. Okay. So our biological tissues start to undergo creep at 20 minutes. Hmm. And creep is most likely to cause pain and inflammation because your body doesn't like it. So does creep work both in terms of like a lengthening as well as a compression or a, a shrinking? Yes, because if you're if you're compressing, you're most likely compressing either the disc or the cartilage and squeezing water out of the cartilage. Or if you're twisted in a certain way, you're lengthening one thing. It can be either way. So your body adapts to what stress you put on it, or the, even a lack of stress is a sort of an adaptation cause. Right, exactly. So if I sleep on my stomach and I've got my head turned to the left, okay, and I've got that all night, I can't imagine not waking up with neck pain, right? And then if I am working and I've got my main monitor over to the left, that's adding to that. Okay. We want to think about being in as many, in as neutral a posture as possible, but also 
changing those postures. One of the things I tell people on first day, if they come in with spinal pain, is you change your position. If you have to sit or do things that are uncomfortable because of work demands or whatever, change your position every 18 minutes. Don't let that creep kick in. And that may may be just a matter of standing up for 30 seconds and walking in place or reaching up and stretching or getting a glass of water, but you're breaking that cycle, right? That can't be a bad rule of thumb, which is to make sure you get up out of your chair every 18 minutes. Right. For road cyclists and gravel cyclists that tend to be in one position longer, you know, mountain bikers, much more dynamic when you're standing and, you know, descending out of the saddle much more and all that. But it's a really good idea to get up out of the saddle, even during times that you don't feel like you need to from a fatigue or power output or anything like that, just to change it up. Yeah. For sure. That makes great sense. Yeah. That sounds like a simple rule people could follow. Don't stay in a position, even in a position that you think is good. Don't stay in it for 20 minutes. Just change. And it doesn't have to be for a half an hour you change. It can just be a minute or two. Well, so we were saying that you can't get better. You can't get stronger to make your back pain go away by riding your bike more. It may not be that it's because of a weakness in a muscle you use cycling. It could be a weakness in a muscle that you don't use cycling, and therefore it's causing an imbalance. Right. But imbalances can come from compensation also. So unless this is the first time you ever rode your bike, your body has adapted to riding the bike. And and these adaptations often are counterproductive. They worked and your body learned to do it. You know, like you were talking about the person who from the back, you can see that their seat's too high and they're tilting. They're going back and forth as their hips have to rotate in order to get the all the way down to the bottom of the pedal stroke. But often what I will see is that it's only on one side, you know, because a person has shifted Mm-hmm. on their saddle so that one pelvis is down yeah. and the other pelvis is up, you know, for whatever reason, maybe. Anyway, now people have compensations. Right, right. Now, in that person's case, they may actually have a true structural leg length difference that they are compensating for. Okay. Right? So we want people to take care of themselves as much as possible. But I will tell you that the research is clear that and you don't have to come to see come to physical therapy of Boulder. You can go see anyone. But the research is clear that physical therapists are the most well-prepared professionals to treat these problems. And you don't need to go see a doctor first. And even if you don't have insurance, we are also been shown to be the most cost-effective profession for treating these problems. So Even if you're, you know, if you're a serious cyclist, and even if you've just got something that you think is minor, but it's not going away, many times it can be go in and see a physical therapist, get an evaluation, and they'll be like, these are the tools you need. Go work with these and maybe come back and see me in three weeks, or maybe you never come back. It's a huge pitfall to try to self-diagnose, you know, even myself. Like if I've got an issue, I go see one of my colleagues. Because we only see what we want to see, right? And you need someone who's very objective. So you're saying that the good physical therapist, because I guess we can't really speak for all physical therapists in the universe, but the good physical therapist is not only going to help you understand what is the issue, but they're going to give you stretches or exercises that you could do that if you keep doing them, 
they not only will resolve the problem, but they will keep the problem from coming back. Exactly. That's the whole model of physical therapy. We obviously want our customers to come back, you know, for another problem, but we don't want our customers to be reliant on us to be their sole caretaker. We want to empower people to take care of themselves. Okay. Well, so we've talked about a a few things here. We've talked about how cycling, back pain and cycling is very common. It can come from lots of sources, lots of which we may never know what exactly what it was. Correct. Very often, if they got a MRI, they would find some structural thing that would make them think, oh, I'm damaged forever, but that's just old age. That's just the aging process. That's how your body, that's how your spine gets older. But that is not cause of pain, usually. What you said was that that MRI looked like that the day before you had your pain. Exactly. So the pain is coming from something else. It might not be from cycling. It might be from how you sleep, or it might be from how you sit in a chair. And maybe cycling was the last 5% that pushed you over the edge. Exactly. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe you already had back pain. I mean, I know people who have back pain all the time. And you know, and cycling is just something they love and they do it anyway. But we also said that you're not going to make your back pain go away by riding your bike more. You need to make your back happier, but not rest. And we didn't talk about this, but from my personal experience, when when I had back problems, I always thought, oh, I have to rest it. I have to let it calm down. And that never, ever helped. And the only thing that ever helped was going hiking with a heavy backpack which is, of course, the opposite thing that I figured would help my back. Well, what's interesting about hiking with a heavy backpack is you're going to activate muscles that you don't necessarily activate when you're cycling. There's another cyclist that I worked with who also was a very skilled cyclist, always, you know, very consistently would podium and cross and raced in Europe and all of that. And he came to see me and he was to the point where I can't train. My back is so bad, I can't train. I go race on Saturday. I can barely get in the car afterwards. And it takes me four or five days to recover. And then I go race again, you know, and he was like super depressed. And this is a big, strong guy. And he does a million different things. And he is not sitting at a desk all that much. Um, He's working outside, doing heavy things. Despite that, he had very specific core weakness. What we did with him was we did a bunch of dry needling to get all the spasm and all that calmed down so his muscle tone was more normal. And we got him going on a very simple core program. So he was doing core work throughout the day. And this is one of my my things. If you do nothing else for your core, do one-minute planks. And if you really want to be strong, challenge yourself to do eight one minute planks throughout the day, not in succession, get out of bed, do a plank, 10 o'clock, do a plank, lunch, do a plank. It is by the time you get to seven or eight, you will be so tired, but you are going to get super strong. And so what we did with him is before he had to do any hard work or got on the bike, he did a plank. And then he started out that he could really only ride about 40 minutes before he was hurting. So at 20 minutes, he would literally stop, get off his bike and do a plank on the side of the road. Okay. We kept doing that. Are you saying that he would stop after 20 minutes, do a plank and get back on his bike? Exactly. And he could keep going past that 40 minute limit 
and he could keep going. And then we, what we did is we got to the place where he was stopping and doing a plank about every 30 minutes in a two and a half hour ride. Wow. Okay. And then he got up to a baseline and, you know, we also looked at how he was riding his bike. His intuition was he was actually trying to ride in a position that was making things worse. So we fixed that, which was kind of ironic for me as a, someone who's late in life teaching an ex European racer how to ride a bike. Now he, he still sends me notes that he's feels stronger than he's felt in years on the bike. And it was so simple. That's amazing. That is amazing. I'm, I'm, that's so good. That sounds like magic. Well, you know, the, the right thing is magic, right? The right, when you need, when you need a glass of water, it is magic, you know, when you really need it. Yeah. That's getting back to getting evaluated by a professional is, you know, it's just like having a coach. So let me ask you about those planks. You had said, you said plank. So I assume you mean just your belly facing the ground and both elbows on the ground. Yep. But not side plank. Side planks are awesome as well. I'm just saying for him, we just started with just a straight plank. And it's harder to do a side plank on the side of the road because you've got all the force through one arm and it's just uncomfortable, right? So one of the things that I had heard that made good sense to me, but tell me what you think is that you can assess your balance, your muscle balance in your in your core side to side by way of doing side planks and seeing how long you can do one on your left side and how long you can do one on your right side. And if they're more than 15% different, then you're so far out of balance that you have a much greater chance of you're going to have back pain. I wouldn't make that statement. What I would say is that we strive for symmetry. There may be research about the 15% that I'm not aware of. You know, it's impossible to keep up with all the research at this point. But I think if you've got more than a 15% difference side to side, that would be something to work to balance for sure. And how would you do that? I mean, would you just do more planks? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you just try, you know, to emphasize the weak side a little bit to get it to catch up. You know, 15% is not a huge amount of difference, but, you know, I see a lot of people that it's more like 50%, Uh, which is, you know, you think about your quads on one leg being 50% of the other, you can imagine what your pedal stroke is going to be like, right? So that is one thing that's easy to assess on your, on your own. And so is that, would that show up as like your back is not stable when you're riding? If your core is not strong, then you can't be stiff. And then the, when you push down on the pedal, you don't want the pedal pushing back up and you're twisting. Right, right. It very well could. I don't know if at 15%, that's something that, you know, we could visually see, you know, if we had somebody on a trainer in-house, Yeah. but certainly makes sense. And one of the things that you alluded to with pain with shoveling and things like that, when we go back to looking at that MRI that shows this degeneration and all that. Yeah. It's been shown that even a 1% amount of degeneration in the disc causes a little bit of shifting that we call micro instability. Okay. That shifting creates this inflammatory soup that irritates the nerves and can cause pain and also cause an abnormal sig- signal to go to muscles to make them tighten up. So that's another thing that, like, as we are, especially 
I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but if we're getting into late March and most people have garden projects and things like that, like do a plank before you go out and shovel, you know, whether it's ground or snow to try to tighten things up to minimize that micro shifting, you know, because then you're less likely to have that inflammatory soup that then will get irritated when you're on the bike. That's interesting. So that it brings up a couple of questions in my mind. One is, is this decay, essentially, this aging of the disc, which is allowing for more instability structurally, something that can be offset by as we age, because this is an aging thing. Mm -hmm. As we age, do you just need to offset that with more muscle tone? I believe so, yes. Okay, so it's an explanation for why do you need to worry about your core muscles more and more as you get older and older, because the structures themselves are not as sound as they were when they were brand new. Right. Okay. The static structures have decayed, so then we look at all the dynamic structures around it to provide extra support. All right, well, that kind of hit both of my things all in one, so so that was really helpful. Well, anyway, I, I, I jumped down a rabbit hole when I was trying to summarize what we had talked about, and then I went off onto my own thing, which I tend to do. No, that's okay. So let me ask you a question, and then we'll see if there's anything else that you wanted to uh, offer to help our audience here either deal with or avoid back pain. It's very common to hear. I've heard it enough that I even believe that it's true. Everybody hears that, oh, you have back pain because you have tight hip flexors which come from sitting, of course, and sitting on a bike or sitting in a chair or, you know, just being bent with your legs up. So that sort of tightening, and then that gives you sort of uh, your glutes don't activate. Uh, And then the other thing they say is that you've got, again, because of sitting, you've got some back muscles, back extensors, I think they call them, that are sort of atrophied, not exercised. And so you end up these things don't activate well uh, or aren't strong enough uh, because even in this case, for example, you were saying do a plank before you go to your gardening. That works as long as you're not going to do so much gardening that your weak muscles that you activated tire out. Is it true? I guess I'm asking you, are, are there muscles that are central to keeping your back strong that become weak or atrophied because of our sitting or cycling and, and if that is true, are there things we can do to strengthen them? There's two sides to the coin. There are, because of the things that we do or don't do, we're either going to be too tight or not tight enough. You know, it is common that people will be very tight in their hip flexors. And then, like you said, not activating their glutes. That is the two sides of that local pelvic coin, I guess we could say. It is, once again, a bit of a a danger to make assumptions about what your body's doing. You know, that's where we get into getting a professional evaluation. But if your hip flexors are tight, that can pull your back into more of an arched position because the hip flexors attach to the lumbar spine, the largest one does. And as we said, that can have an inhibitory effect on the glutes. And part of that is just if you're not able to fully extend the hip because the front of the hip is tight, the back doesn't get to engage. So even like if you go for a hike or a walk or a run, you may not be using your glutes because you're not extending your hip 
enough. And that is a really important thing as we look at getting into back to where we started in this conversation about healthy hip joints, right? But it can put the back in a disadvantaged position for sure. So these tight hip flexors, uh, psoas and whatever the muscles are that are quote unquote hip flexors that are tight, is, is the problem, is it just that they're shortened because they're always in a shortened position or is, are they also weak? You know, that's a matter of testing. Many times they are weak, but that's something that's easy to test out. And once again, I don't like to make assumptions. Sure, sure. And are these hip flexors muscles that get exercised when you do a plank? No, no, they don't. They get, a, you know, they might get lengthened a little bit just because you're in a long straight position. Uh-huh. And then the back extensor muscle are these muscles that are exercised when you are doing a plank? They, there is some co-contraction of them as well. Um, there is uh, The back extensors do work a bit when you're climbing on the bike that most people don't realize. Like It's pretty common for people that are kind of stick to the flats with their riding through the winter and early spring when they start climbing that their lower back will be a little bit sore as they start doing longer climbs. Right. But that goes back to our muscle soreness that's gone usually the next day. Sure. That could be consistent with the idea of get out of the saddle more than you think you need to change that position. And one of the things you could do is you could be practicing riding out of the saddle. I I think this is a thing that cyclists do too little of. I mean, unless they're climbers, they do too little of it. And perhaps there, there would be multiple benefits from that. You not only avoid this creep, but you also are exercising some of the lower back muscles which perhaps are not as strong as you'd like them to be because of all of the sitting that we do, whether it's on the bike or on the, in a chair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then is there any reason to, I mean, everybody talks about, you know, stretching the hip flexors. Uh, is there a reason to exercise the hip flexors? Uh, maybe make them stronger? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think once again, that's something that is best evaluated by a professional and many times that strength will come back as the mobility is improved, but definitely anything that's weak, we want to get, we want to strengthen for sure. That's always what I've assumed to be true, but we don't want to strengthen things out of balance. Yeah. I don't want a giant bicep and a infant's tricep. Correct. I, I think you, we would be kind of looking at trouble if we were doing a lot to strengthen the hip flexors and not addressing the glutes at the same time. Right, right. And I think most people, if I'm looking at most of the people I've seen, they have far more weakness in their glutes than they do in their hip flexors. So it could even be that, okay, I want you to work for six weeks on these glutes, and then we'll start doing some hip flexor work to try to get that balance. That makes perfectly good sense. I mean, the glute is a gigantic muscle, and if it's under strength or not being used in the way you pedal a bicycle, you are really missing out. There's a lot of watts in that glute. Oh, yeah. That's the, that's the lowest yeah. hanging fruit. You want more FTP? Yeah. yeah. Get Start using your glutes. Exercise your glutes. Get them stronger. They are huge, super strong muscles. The hip flexor is not something that generally is recommended that you use for like pulling up on pedals. It's just unnatural. Yeah. 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 But, but if they're too tight or if they're weak, then that would, I mean, these are muscles that provide stability 
in through the low back and the hip. And so that's just begging for a problem. Right. And, you know, as we're talking, most people, especially in this COVID era, have a a quality indoor trainer set up. And one of the things that we look at, you know, we've talked a lot about strength and flexibility, but we haven't really talked about neuromuscular control or coordination. Yeah. Maybe a great thing to do for everyone is next time you get ready to do a trainer session, you do some 30 second bouts of one legged cycling. And you compare that experience right to left. And you're not necessarily, you can look if you've got the setup, you could maybe look at how many watts you're comfortably able to put out or even, you know, not, not trying to max out just like as you're pedaling around, what are you producing? And then look at the other side and look at the watts, but more importantly than the watts, what does it feel like? Because many times there will be those dead spots in the pedal stroke that are unique to one side, which is easily trained by doing the same thing. Let's do some one-legged cycling and focus on that because then that will directly translate into what forces are going into your back. You said it directly influences, your pedal stroke influences the forces applied to your back. Yeah. So if your pedal stroke is asymmetrical, you're going to have asymmetrical forces into your back. In a way other than power? Well, if you've got a dead spot in one in the circles you make on one side compared to the other, the power will be different. Okay. So you if you were assessing that, as opposed to like a warm-up technique that you would that you would do before you did your workout, this would be more trying to see, you know, and for people who maybe have power meter pedals or they've got power mm-hmm. meters on both cranks right. and they can assess the power from each foot. If you've got a power imbalance, that's a sign of something. Exactly. And it might not be a back problem. It might just be a neuromuscular thing, or maybe it could just be a bad technique on one foot. It might be you're actually weaker on one of your legs right? for whatever reason. But if you are doing that, then you're, again, you're saying that will put a different load on each side of the back, and that is going to lead to some issues probably. Possibly. Once again, we never know, but if we are trying to do the best to take care of ourselves, that is on the list. Okay. I think I certainly do not do this on a regular basis, but I think if we're trying to, if we're going for, you know, the ultimate to take care of ourselves, we would do one-legged drills every time we get on the trainer. Even if it's warm up, three sets of 30 seconds on each side. Okay. I think it really does help activate your legs better and change the forces into your back. And doing it one leg at a time, you're saying allows you to think of the whole stroke for each leg Exactly. Yep. before you then start doing the, the real workout. Okay. Well, that's great. This has been really good. You know, the, I mean, the spine is a long instrument and we've really talked about the bottom end of it. And, uh, and I see we're really running out of time here, but is there anything that we could talk about briefly about like the mid back, upper back, or the neck? The neck is actually my passion. And so that's a big topic. But what we always see in cyclists with neck pain is that the very top of their neck is held in an extended position from sitting at the computer and being on the bike. Right. So leaning forward like I'm doing right now. Not even leaning forward, but just 
letting the chin go forward. Well, because the neck goes forward and now the chin yeah. has to go up. Exactly. So you can see in front of you, which is very similar to where we are on the bike. Yes. So it is of paramount that if you're having neck pain, that you get someone to work on that upper neck mobility because that upper neck mobility changes the forces. Like I've even had people that were scheduled for surgery because they had nerve pain from the middle of their neck going down their arm that was severe. Yeah. You change the motion in their upper neck so there's not so much force going to that spot. The nerve pain goes away and they're good. So this person didn't need surgery? Didn't need surgery. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That, those are the best stories. Yeah. You're going to go into the knife and then you fix it without the knife. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is, uh, that upper neck mobility is, is crucial. I'm sure that, that it's very common for cyclists to also have neck pain for this particular reason. I mean, I, now that I, we're, we're talking about it, yes, I get that myself, but I've always had like, maybe as you have had neck issues. Yeah. One of the things that I have found to be useful but I'm looking for you to give everybody advice, yeah. not me give everybody advice because what the hell do I know? Is uh, I, you know, I'm sitting watching TV or I'm driving in my car and I'll just do kind of a range of motion with my neck. I'll be go back and forth and then I'll, you know, side to side. And I'm just sort of working with whatever is possible. My neck will let me do what I do, but I'll just keep going. And, and over time, I, it loosens up and it loosens up and then I feel better. Mm -hmm. I mean, what should people do? What is a good thing to do? It's not easy to lift weights with your neck. So how do you exercise? Yeah. So here's the thing. When you have pain, movement is always good within your tolerance, not forcing anything, but maybe you move five or 10 millimeters and you do that a few times and then you can go 10 or 15 millimeters and you go through that. However, if we use your, your neck, Joe, if the assumption we can make or I can make it as a, as a practitioner is your upper neck is going to be incredibly stiff. So when you're doing a lot of these movements, you're actually just encouraging movement where you already move too much. And you could theoretically be making yourself worse over time. Let me see if I understand what you're saying, that because there's multiple vertebra there. Yep. The ones that aren't moving much where I have the problem, when I move my neck around, they're not moving. It's the other ones that are moving more to compensate for the ones that are moving less. Right. The neck is going to take the path of least resistance. Okay. So you don't want to be doing things that just make the ones that move too much move more. Right. You don't stretch something that's overstretched. That makes sense. Okay? So when you we look at strengthening the neck... There are, you know, little chin tucks and lifts you can do while you lay on your back, um, but also upper body strengthening where you use your arms and lift, you know, in different ways can definitely translate to neck strengthening. But like I said, usually this is a mobility issue. And if people want to go to our website, which is ptaboulder.com, they can email me, uh, you know, with specific questions. I'm happy to answer them. Nice. And I likely will be able to offer some basic advice. You know, we're very careful about treating people without full evaluation and all that. But we can answer questions and things like that for people. Okay. So the last thing I, I was going to ask you, and maybe you just dealt with it already, was this, was the upper back thing. 
Yeah. You mentioned upper back as far as, as a part of dealing with the neck, but upper back issues, people have their arms stretched, their reach is too far on their bike. And so they've got sure. too much stress on their upper back. Do you see that? Do people have upper back problems too? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just neck and low back. It's, it's, it's the whole spine. It's the whole spine. And sure. there's all kinds of things that people could do. And so these exercises, these planks, and, and maybe you even have some a set of things that people should do. A plank surely would help your upper back as well as your lower back. Right. What would be a good thing? You roll out of bed in the morning. The foam roller to extend the middle back, laying with it longwise, and your arms are out to the side. Parallel with your spine and your arms stretched down to the ground. Yeah. We try to get the, the back of the hand on the floor and then try to keep those arms on the floor as you go all the way up. Okay, great. That is, you know, a great thing for mobility there. Excellent. Did you just say that, and the arms rotate sort of up and, and down? Yeah, we call it snow angels. Okay, I get that. Yeah, just like you're yeah, making a snow angel. Okay, uh, and, and anything else uh, people would do? I mean, the planks we said. I mean, there's so much. Okay. And like I said, if people have specific questions, they can email. Yeah. Uh, we're happy to deal with that. There's some simple things to do that are hard to describe yeah. without the visual, but I'm happy to help people via email. Okay. So people should reach out to you. In fact, what, what I'll do is I'll get your website and any other information you want in the show notes. I'll get that from you and put that into the show notes so people can just go directly to you. Is there anything else, Doug? I mean, this has been great for me. I hope for our audience as well. No, I mean, it's, it's been super fun to be able to talk and I hope this is helpful for people. Like I said, there's so much to talk about with the neck. Maybe that's another conversation, but uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. Well, awesome. I'd be delighted to have you back on to talk about the neck. Thank you for your time. This has been huge. Maybe the one top line message for people is don't be afraid. Your back is just getting older. It's not falling apart. And there's so much you can do to make it better. Yeah. Don't be paralyzed by pain ever. Excellent. Well, that's a good message. Yeah. All right, Doug. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Yep. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Doug Hanna of Physical Therapy of Boulder. I hope you found Doug's wisdom on back health as helpful as I did. If you have questions for Doug, check out the show notes where you can find a link to the Physical Therapy of Boulder website. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.